Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz, up in the northwest, and to continue with our levelling up agenda down the southeast, we've got Baz. How's it going, Baz? <laughs> premier. The premier RPG. Does that mean we have to, like, uh, there's two of us left in the race and about three people in the country have to vote to see which one of us is going to be the actual premier of the oh, premier maybe. podcast? We, we, yeah, we're going to take uh, a very small percentage of our listeners and get them to choose. Yeah. What would the smart party do with with Liz and Rishi? Bin them both. <laughs> just <laughs> send them the owlbears. That's, that's what I would do. One thing's for sure, by the time you're listening to this, there will be a twat in charge, no matter what happens. <laughs> yeah. We just don't know which flavour yet. Yeah, and that's just on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so, to move on to things like the podcast, levelling up, I think it's time we talk a bit more about D&D and show it some love, or at least talk about our relationship with it, what's happening at the minute, because it is now going to be in the future. It does seem a long way off, but they do like the long tail playtest these days, one D&D, and it'll be interesting, first of all, to see if that sticks, because they didn't want to go for different versions. I think when the latest iteration came out, they wanted to call it D&D Next or something, but everybody calls it 5e. So, uh, what, what do you think? Will one D and D stick as the title for sixth <laughs> or five point five or whatever this edition is? No, no. I mean, <laughs> people have called it what they want, won't they? And yeah. and because they're people, they'll deliberately call it something like you know D and D McD face or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you get the public involved. <laughs> I do call it D and Dizzle quite a lot. I yeah. like that one. Yeah, D and D next was quite a nice name. Um, back when they were playtesting what became 5th edition. But I remember the, the day that 5th edition came out, everyone hurriedly opened up the contents page to see what they were going to call it. Was it going to be called 5th edition or or 4.5 or have any n- notion of the word edition at all? It was like um, something for people to get excited and, and uh, aerated about, <laughs> stupidly. So, yeah, you can see what WotC are trying to do here. What they're trying to do is just move away from edition because... No, nothing good has ever come from a conversation that uses the word edition in it and D&D. You put those two together in a sentence and there is just tears before bedtime every single time. It's very true. Yeah. I think they're trying to like view this as just D&D now. I think, yeah. Although they're making tweaks. So one of the things I noticed is they're trying to make everything backward compatible. So whatever changes they do, you should still be able to use your books that you can buy now and that are still coming out. In fact... There's some that are just still on um, pre-order that are going to be out, you know, or out in America, but not out in EMEA yet, and all that kind of stuff. So, I think they're happy with the stability of the rules as a whole. So, I wouldn't go expect any wholesale changes now, but it feels like they they think they've got their engine, mm. and I'm wondering if that's perhaps a way of looking at how their business model must be working as well, because previously for things like. Uh, in Chaosium, for example, I know that they always produced another version of Call of Cthulhu that was very similar to the previous one because mm. that made loads of money compared to supplements and things. So whenever you saw a new Call of Cthulhu, it's quite often the way the company stayed afloat rather than being the necessity for another edition of Call of Cthulhu. Mm. And with D&D, it feels like they have tried to change things and uh, make them better for one, one way or another, depending on your point of view. But now it feels like they just want to keep the rules more or less as they are with some tweaks and the, the actual driving force where the money co- is coming from is things like online enablements, having their own platform for digital, uh, having source books for things, letting 
all us people who do stuff on DMs Guild generate adventures and scenarios and things like that and supplements. So maybe like having stability in DD is going to be a good thing overall. Yeah, it could be. I don't know if that's ever really going to be possible because I think perhaps that that Wyvern has bolted out of the stable a long time ago. Hmm. Um, I mean, as editions go, fifth edition's been around for about a decade. Yeah, 2012, something like that. Hmm. That's a very long time for a D&D edition. Yes. Um, a very long time. Um, some have done a very, very short amount of time in comparison. You look at stuff like D&D Essentials, which was kind of the precursor to fifth. That really wasn't available on the shelves for very long. And interestingly enough, that was supposed to be the evergreen D&D that would never mm. change. And, you know, you might get a new box cover, but the contents would be the same and it would be in Target stores and Walmarts all over the world. That did not come to pass. Um, fifth edition is stable because it's had 10 years without any major changes to it. Although what C have always done, um, what they're doing now with uh, Unearthed Arcana, uh, which is like their playtest pages and mm-hmm. some of the the official core stuff that they've released in hardback has expanded the game or clarified elements. Um, there's stuff in the player's handbook from back in the day, back in 2014, which which you don't use anymore particularly. Um, like downtime actions, that was pretty much completely replaced in a later book. But generally speaking, that player's handbook monster manual from 2014 is still something you would have open beside you. Or more likely, you'd use D&D Beyond, which is all part of this this new process now. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, um, the big thing with D&D that they're looking to do is sort of a three-pronged attack, as I think you alluded to, actually, Gaz. So there's a digital tabletop. Heard that one before for fourth edition, but I think it's much more realistic this time around. Um, which would be a competitor to Roll20 and Foundry and all the other things that we've all had to use over the last few years. There's D&D Beyond, which is the website which most D&D players, all of the D&D players that I know have used it really intensively with online players especially. It's been a real boon. Um, and actually it's been something that you kind of regret isn't available for other games as well. It makes it quite hard to play <laughs> other games when you've been treated to the access to the stuff that you need. And then there's the the, the rules of the game itself, the system of the game, um, which looks like it's still going to have three books attached to it, a player's handbook, a monster manual, dungeon master's guide. And that's kind of like the stuff that I suppose we will all get exercised about, like, you know, what they're going to do to critical hits and how does armor class work now. Mm-hmm. But really, like you say, with the business model, it looks like these three things are coming together. And that's why they're calling it one D&D, because... When you and I talk D&D, we think about a hardback book and a funny-shaped dice. Mm-hmm. If you're 19 and starting to get into D&D, maybe you think of a laptop and a virtual mm. tabletop and a, a cartoon tiefling. Maybe you just have... A, I think I think modern D&D just doesn't look like I have it in my imagination. Yeah, quite probably. Uh, we had Ajit George on last time. Mm. And if you look at the front cover of Radiant Citadel... That's just like a. It doesn't look like a D and D book, is what a lot of people said. Yeah. Which is you know, and it doesn't look like a classical D and D book, and I'm all right with that. There were obviously an element of people mm. who looked at it and hated it and said, "Why doesn't it look like Lord of the Rings?" But I think that's that's very true. And as you've discussed before, like a lot of kids these days think about Rick and Morty or Adventure Time when you say fantasy rather than classical fantasy, as we might might have thought about it when we're their age. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that this 
they, they would prefer us not to call this sixth edition mm. simply because whenever you do a new edition for any game, whether it's D&D or Cthulhu or any game, you've kind of got to look to your existing fan base. You've got to keep them reasonably sweet if you want to do anything. But you've got to look to increase your fan base as well and you've got to try and get some new people on board. So by the backwards compatibility thing that you mentioned, that's that's quite a big step towards that. Um, last time that happened was the, when we went from AD&D to second edition was probably mostly backwards compatible and everything since then hasn't been really. Mm-hmm. Um, fifth edition has been like the greatest hits of all the previous books so I think they can afford now to go, yeah, okay, we can we can keep this backwards compatible. But what does that really mean anyway? I mean, when you get down to the nitty gritty of stuff, it will never be completely backwards compatible. Not really. No. I mean, you could say that everything ever released for D and D is backwards compatible. Really, you could take the Isle of Dread and run it with fifth edition tomorrow. You could eyeball a lot of stuff; it wouldn't be too tricky. Yeah. But people don't do that. They want to buy the official stuff, the new stuff, the the current canon. Yeah. So there will be a tension where the old guard will want to look at it as sixth edition. Most people will probably just shrug and say, "I play D and D." In fact, you know, outside of our little echo chamber. Do people who play D and D really discuss editions very much, or do they just say we're playing D and D? Yeah, probably that. Yeah. yeah. An interesting comment I saw from I think it was Chris Perkins uh, in the reveal video they did for it, and he he mentioned he's going to be looking at the DMG because he said it's maybe not the best book for if you're new to D and D, and I thought that was a, a remarkable admission. Obviously, the whole video is set in a very positive light and how they're going to improve things and what they can do to iteratively make things better. But what I heard in my head was an admission that that book isn't good enough for new DMs. Mm. And I think we've we've sort of like, we did our deep dive of it. People can go back yeah. and uh, listen to the archives if they want to do that. And I think it is true. I mean, I, I don't want to like hammering for it. I think I, I'm glad that you sort of like recognised that because I don't think... Uh, as you say, you've got the you have got the old guy, but for, if you want to bring new people in, which is constantly what you've got to do in this sort of hobby, so that the games workshop you pretty well, always getting new people into the hobby is how you keep the stores going, etc. Mm. It has to be accessible, and part of that might be the online format and, and making it available for people who use laptops and tablets and phones all the time because that's how they consume media mm. and written word these days. But part of it's got to be the actual text as well, hasn't it? It's got to be easier to get into. I think mentioning D and D Beyond, for example. Because I'm not playing D&D all the time, I do it occasionally. I'm glad that's there, because levelling up characters is actually quite hard work in the PHP as well. If you go yeah. to play a sandbox, it's not obvious. You don't go to our page saying, do this, that, and the other. Like, mm-hmm. each character class is spread over half a dozen or more pages with different options. You've got to select, work out what level you are, and then work out which paragraph applies to you, and then do the thing. Yeah. So, yeah, and it'd be interesting to see how much of a change there is to the Dungeon Master's Guide to make it better or easier for new people as well because I think the old crowd will be able to deal with it however it's formatted or laid out they'll, they'll you know go through the fine tooth comb to get the bits they want won't they mm. but um, yeah and the, the other thing I was thinking about that as well is is exploration actually going to be one of the three pillars still and I presume it will be in them but what I'd like to see is is it actually going to be in practice because it just doesn't get any pages yeah. in the core books at the minute and, and it needs to be more than that if you're going to claim it's one of your Basis for your game, I would suspect. Um, my prediction is that they won't talk about the three pillars anymore. That that's that's what I predict. It's um, hmm. the three pillars was a kind of a Mike Merle's statement back in the late days of Four E, really, um, hmm. and it was used 
at this particular time, just before 5th edition came out, when they were doing the whole charm offensive kind of stuff, like they're doing now for 1 D&D, it was, it was a comment that was made then. And I don't even know if it was supposed to be an official sanctioned comment or just a throwaway one. And it ended up in the player's handbook, so, you know, fair enough. Um, mm-hmm. But it, and, and I immediately thought, this makes a lot of sense, because you know what the core activity of your game you're designing is. You've decided it's going to be about this, this, and this. I wish more games did that. But then, obviously, over the next eight to ten years, people have started like, you know, flicking through their books going, where is that exploration pillar that we were told about? And it's not really there. But I, I just think that they will just talk about it in a different way, but carry on um, with D&D as it is today, realistically. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, some of that exploration stuff, it, it might get some mechanical heft. Or they might think, it doesn't really need it. Let's just... Mm-hmm. Just play D and think yeah. um I think it will be, as you say, I think that the rules text for D and D is is important because it will underpin everything else that they do. Um but I think what they're after here is to make it almost like an operating system for the other stuff they want to layer on top, the other platforming stuff. Five E has been pretty good, but there's loads of gnashing of teeth from people who go like, Well, how are you expecting me to like do this with uh, the One Ring or Doctor Who? Can, can we not five the everything, please? There's mm. always people shouting that. Yeah, there's always a lot of people buy those things too. But if if one D and D gets stripped back down to something which is more of a platform that you can build on top of, I suspect that's what they're going for again. That they will want to make this almost invisible. And if you're playing online, it will be. It will just be underneath the hood, won't it? You'll just be clicking yeah. your buttons and pointing and talking and so on. So, you know, they they have mentioned that layout will be different, and I really hope it will be. To your point, mate, I think those books are actually quite difficult to navigate, even for old hands, mm. because as an old hand, you're going through it going, what's different? And for a new hand, you're going, uh, is this assuming that I know what strength is? <laughs> yeah. You know? And why am I rolling 3d6 for these things? That number never happens again. Right. Why, why, why am I doing it? So there is all kinds of weird things in it. And um, and it will be interesting to see what it looks like. I kind of hope it isn't three hardback books. They might do that for the old guard. They might make it, you know, like a retro edition. Hmm. That would be but probably a smart move. As, after that, what it looks like, I don't know. I doubt it'll be three whole binders like it was for second edition. Right. But who knows? Yeah, I would like to see a new SRD and just have mm. like these, this is the rules without all the fluff in it. Yeah, but I'd, I'd like that for all games. But I, I think, especially for D and D, it'd be interesting. Not sure whether they'll do it that way or not. Mm. Mm. I, I am nervous about it though, because my relationship with D and D has changed a lot over the course of my interest in the hobby, just generally, because it's been around as long as the hobby has. Um, I'm not jumping up and down with joy about the rules changes that they've play testing right now. They don't make me think, oh, yeah, this has fixed all of the issues I ever had. I'm not sure where the audience was for some of the changes that they're mooting. Um, in, and, but equally, I'm not like you know despondent about it. Going, oh, no, they've killed my favourite game. It just yeah. feels like something for somebody else, really, to be honest. I'm not, I'm not yeah. fussed either way, and that's probably the last reaction they want to get from people. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, maybe us at, at, uh, in the middle of our lives aren't people they care about anyway when they when they look True. at all this. Um, yeah, well, maybe it's worth d- discussing some of the bits that have come out in the rules sure. packets because, and I think based on previous times, like these will be subject to change. These are things mm. they're throwing out, getting play test feedback on, and then there'll be another packet in a period of time 
with slightly different rules, maybe. Yeah. Or, or things taken out or put in or pushed or rode back on and all that kind of stuff. And that will happen several times. Um, I guess the, the first one to mention is criticals. And, and they're talking about uh, monsters not rolling criticals against players. The, the, the thing behind this seemed to be that at first level, if a monster criticals, you can kill a character or obviously get to death serves and that kind of thing. And they thought that was too bad, but I, like not many people play first level D&D, do they? You play it for one session and then you're second level. So that that I'm not sure about. And the, the thing I'd like to see for that, not that they're listening to me or should care, but <laughs> if, you, if you roll a 20 and it's important, it should just be important all the time. Because like, it doesn't matter for skills, for example, indeed. There's, there is no critical diplomacy check if you roll a 20. It's mm. just a diplomacy check. And it doesn't matter what the number was that you rolled. It's just pass or fail. So I would like to see if they're going to change critical rules to make when you roll a 20, that bit that everybody gets where they get excited because it's a critical. It should be every time you roll that dice. If you get a 20, people should be pumping the air or high-fiving each other. Or oh, that's what I'd like to anyway. What do you reckon, Baz? You've probably got a more nuanced view of criticals and things than me. Yeah, well, uh, it's an interesting take because as with most things in most mechanically hefty games, you make one change and it actually ripples away through quite a bit of the system. So in isolation, you could look at the, the new idea for critical hits, uh, which we can go through, um, but I don't think you can look at it in isolation because the answer is it depends. So, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the various facets of it then. So, you know, uh, I'll work backwards on this. So your point about um, what's happening with normal D20 rolls, you know, outside of a fight, they have made a change. So a roll of a 20 automatically succeeds and a roll of a one automatically fails which is a slight twist on what they've said in the past. And they've also put in the little playtest document a really interesting little thing. It's only two sentences long, but I'll read it all because I think it's really interesting. Um, (laughs) The DM determines whether a D20 test is warranted in any given circumstance. To be warranted, a D20 test must have a target number no less than 5 and no greater than 30. So, that's new. And and actually quite useful. You might think you don't need to spell these things out, but actually I think you probably do have to. And a D20 test, which is their new sort of name for what what they do in the game already, covers ability checks, attack rolls, and saving throws. So there we go. So rolling a one in any of those is automatically a fail. Rolling a 20 in any of those is automatically a success. So that's a slight change. Mm -hmm. But critical hits, I don't like them. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> but then I don't like the current ones and here's the reason why right so I totally get actually that critical hits are probably better off just for the players and not the monsters because as a DM it is a little bit unwieldy when you roll a 20 to hit with a monster and then you're scrabbling around for extra dice trying to work out exactly what the formula is for a crit because it isn't simple I think the current rules are that it's you just double up all the dice that you roll, but you keep the same static modifier. So if it was 3d6 plus 4 for an attack, a critical hit would be 6d6 plus 4, for example. Write in if I've got that wrong. I don't think I have. So that's not actually easy for a DM to do under pressure with loads of kobolds running around all over, all over the place. And the game has average damage in it, which mm. a lot of people want to use anyway. So yeah. a critical hit, just doubling a number should be the way that criticals work just generally, I think. Even for players, 
just like roll your normal damage and double it and then we can all move on looking around for dice you go does this count does this not count does sneak attack count does smite count and, and by the way they don't apparently it's not for the new it's <laughs> it's all a bit unwieldy and if you think it is unwieldy taking it away from the dm means you're saying it is unwieldy so shouldn't you just change it can't mm. can't because around a real table and even online you've done enough of this guys when you see the dm roll a, a 20 a natural 20 on the table or it pops up in the chat window you do get a little bit of the, the fear and that's quite good that's a mm. moment to lean into especially seeing as like in the 21st century we don't really roll behind gm screens do we everything falls where it may mm -hmm. but if you're a new player and you've had to have critical hits explained to you and you roll one and you're jumping up and down and like mad that's great and then you see the the dm roll natural 20s and you get all despondent for a second till the dm goes oh no it doesn't count when i do it it's like already an awkward conversation that just feels unwieldy yes yeah i agree and yeah for like the there's something weird around calculating damage, like you're saying now, that means you don't get to just double stuff, which is, if you're making it hard work, or was it, I don't know whether it was, is it Pathfinder 4? There's one where, yeah, did you have a threat range or something? Or you, That's it. You had the potential for a critical, then you had to roll again to see if you got one. That, that just takes all the fun out of it. You shouldn't be able to do more work at that point. I'm always reminded of uh, Pendragon when it comes to this kind of stuff, that if you get a critical, you roll double damage, and, and mm. that you roll twice as many dice. So yep. that shouldn't be too onerous for anybody. You don't have to scrubble around for more dice. You roll your normal dice and then roll them again. <laughs> yeah. Like you've got things down. It's a really simple rule. And you do get that moment when players roll criticals, they're super excited. And when a baddie rolls a critical, everybody's like, oh my God, you're not really getting the black armbands out for the night. He's about to be decapitated or something. And it means something. It's a meaningful moment. And that's that's kind of what you want from your dice, isn't it? We, we always talk about this, about only rolling when it's important. So yeah. it sounds like there is some advice around that now saying... I mean, I'm not sure how often a DC5 thing is anything you want to roll for, but still, you know, when you roll dice and it comes up with a big magic number, it should be something that happens and it should be easy to do and mm. easily understandable, I think. If, you, if you're just fiddling around with the edges with it, you're just making it more hard work, aren't you? you you're requiring more calculation, more thought. You're taking the, the, the experience you want, you're taking some of it away by adding extra labouring, is how I look at it. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and and your point, which uh, is not your point necessarily, but the the alleged point about uh, first level characters being killed too easily with crits, I never saw it. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but my, but the evidence of my many many hundreds of hours of play would suggest that five E characters are not exactly squishy at any point. You know, it's it's actually quite hard to kill a character in D and D, even at yeah. first level. And so, what if a critical hit does chop the head off of a first level character? I know that there's a whole set of tones and levers and so on that you want to pull and push, but a first level D&D &D character in any edition is classically, you know, a little bit vulnerable because it's first level. And even in 5e, level 1 and level 2 are supposed to be like your tutorial levels. You would level up yeah. quite fast. So yeah, so what if you get your head bitten off by a giant rat at first level? Roll up another character, right? I just mm. I don't know where the, where the clamour was for that fix. No. And I'll say that about a lot of the stuff in these playtest documents is like, I don't know where the clamour was was for this stuff. This it's not quite change for change's sake, 
but I wonder if it, any of this is necessary because these all look like critical hits being a prime example they look like stuff that was probably bandied around when they invented 5th edition it was probably <laughs> part of the D&D next playtest and really have you not got critical hits sorted out by now really after 5 big editions and loads of basic editions and, and all the other stuff like the way 13th Age does it or the OSR does it really are we still looking at critical hits and trying to finesse it it just seems like it just seems like a lot of mucking around at something that I don't think people particularly had an issue with it. No one cared about it anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you know, if you're first level character, if you get hit twice, that's you, you're done anyway. Yeah. When I run it for my noobs, you know, one got hit and the bugbear rolled whatever it was seven damage, and the character paled and went, "I've only got one hit point left." And I was like, "Well, yeah, that's kind of." That's how it starts. <laughs> You're going to be superheroes by fifth level, but right now, yeah. you're in trouble. And it, like, it's not like you can run away or do something about that or get an extra heal from somewhere. Mm. Like, that's just You just don't have enough hit points at first level. So if you want to solve that problem of not, a crit not killing someone, like just give first level characters a few more hit points so that doesn't happen. Yes. It's you know, an easier fix. Just exactly. start from a higher base. And it moves into the whole thing here about the critical hits only being available for player characters now. So... That that has that ripple effect. Monsters in 5th edition are one thing that really do grate my cheese a little bit. As a fan of D&D and monsters generally, I think 4th edition got monsters pretty much right. Pretty much, barring a few maths issues. 5th edition monsters are a pain to run. Mm. They have massive stat blocks, they have loads of, of useless information in there, or information that's of no use at all, like this creature casts spells as a 5th level wizard. So I'd better, I'd better make sure I understand the whole of the player's handbook then, hadn't I? That's right, yeah, I've got to go get another book now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, So they're quite tricky to run. You kind of have to study your monsters before you run your game. Or you need to have it all set up so that you've got like crib sheets or whatever. And I don't think anyone's really settled on a way of formatting a monster, even after eight years of edition. But I tell you what, the, the long, long list of things I'd want to change about monster formatting... It doing a critical hit was not on that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, they they changed the format in a bit, didn't they? Quite recently, I think. Mm. There's a thing like you could, the spells were putting as powers on yeah. the step bucket, which was a bit better. Like better. So you just had, you know, lightning bolt as an ability used twice a day or whatever, rather than go away and look at how lightning bolts cast and what it does. You just mm. had it like there in the text as an ability, which I thought was better. But like you say. There's there's quite a few things you could do to make the running of monsters easier on the DM mm-hmm. before you worry about the dice you're rolling so much. Yeah, definitely. It's not a ter- look, it's not a terrible idea. This whole critical thing is just shrug, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and we like to talk about these things, so no one should take away from this that there's a, a massive uproar at Smart Party Towers about it all. We just <laughs> like to chew the fat on it and talk through the minutia. So. Exactly. If you're not here for that, wrong podcast. Sorry, go somewhere else. <laughs> Don't go. No, come back. We're joking. <laughs> so you've got the playtest uh, document in front of there, Baz. That we've, we've talked enough about critical hits or a critical misses. It might be. Are, are there any other bits in there that have uh, caught your eyes? Potential good and or bad things. Oh, inspiration. Jesus. <laughs> that was the thing I was going to mention. <laughs> right. So when you. <sighs> When you think about 5th edition, um, and I like 5th edition, I think it's a pretty solid set of rules, okay? And one of the big innovations in there was, um, perhaps unexpectedly, was the idea of advantage. 
roll two dice, keep the best one, or roll two dice, keep the worst one. Not it didn't come from D and D fifth, but that certainly popularised the idea, and it's been extended to loads of other games now because it just makes sense. I don't think they knew when they did that rule how easy it was, how people would almost universally just think that's great, that just saves so much time and trouble. What a good idea that was. I think instead they were all sitting around in the design studio feeling quite smug about themselves for inventing the idea of inspiration. But it's been the opposite because it's just not landed at all. I mean, I forget it's even there. I never remember to give it out as a DM. It's uh, It looks like it should be a good thing. There's some ideas in the Dungeon Master's Guide to use it in all kinds of ways, like for plot points or all kinds of stuff. It should be a really nice little mechanic. And it was definitely taking D&D into a slightly new direction. Um, yeah, so why is it why has it fallen so flat over the years? I don't really know, but I'm sh- pretty sure that the way they want you to do inspiration now isn't going to make it the star of the show that perhaps designers think it will be. I think they're obviously trying to boost its its utility. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, the idea behind inspiration is it's if you don't play D&D, it's the equivalent, I suppose, of a Benny or a Fate Point or one of those kind of hero point economies. So... You can give yourself a boost when you need it. And when you have inspiration, it means you can have advantage on a D20 test. Fine. So we've already said that advantage is good. But you can only uh, have inspiration or not have it. It's a binary thing. And I think that might Mm. be part of the problem. So you've either got it checked off as like it's available to you or it's not. Um, And now they've decided to give you inspiration if you roll a 20 on a D20 test. And a D20 test is ability, attack, save, as previously discussed. So now, if you get a critical in combat, you also get inspiration. Or the rules say the DM can also award inspiration to a character who's done something that's particularly heroic or amusing. And it used to be just the heroic or amusing thing. It was like the little dog biscuits that GMs can hand out to what they call good role players in scare quotes. So yeah. now you can mechanically get inspiration. I, just, I still don't see that that's going to make inspiration a thing that people know about at the game table or use. What do you think, mate? Uh, I think you're right. Everybody forgets about it. Literally everyone. I don't know of a table where it's used regularly, apart from there's, there's certainly a set of players who keep it for saves. Hmm. And it's like, I just refuse to use it for anything else. It's just like, if I need to make some death saves or something, I'm keeping my inspiration. If you can use it on death saves, I don't even know if you can or not. But like, that's definitely the thing I've heard. Hmm. Uh, I think that the rule change might mean it gets used more because now you get it back more. Like you mm-hmm. say, originally it's based on GM fiat and we've all kind of moved away from that thing where you have to perform well for the GM in order for them to give you a thing and it's a nebulous thing and it just depends on where, what mood they're in and whether they remember and all, all those other things. If you make it a mechanical thing so you get it back on a 20, it might mean people are more likely to use it mm-hmm. because they know it's going to come back potentially with or without the GM's help. It might just turn up by rolling a 20, so that's the thing. There is talk around uh, maybe it'd be better if when you roll a 20, one of your friends gets it, or one of the, the players, mm-hmm. because you've inspired them with your actions. So that that's an interesting tweak that might happen. Uh, but yeah, I think like if you think of momentum, for example, in the 2D20 games, that sits in a pool in the middle of the table and could be a maximum of six, I think it is, which is you know more or less one per player, let's call it. 
But if inspiration was more like that, if you had a little pot of it that sat there and people could see, and every time somebody rolled a 20, it went into that central pot, mm-hmm. and people could use it whenever they want, I think it would get used as a mechanic more. It does sit outside the game, I think. Like, so everything else that's there at the minute, hit points or spell slots or other things, are, like, are integral with the rest of the mechanics and just seem to fit. It feels like a bolt-on, like you said. I think mm-hmm. the designers thought, oh, we had this great idea, we'll use this. But doesn't it doesn't do enough. There's not enough of it. And... Like I know most people use it for a reroll. Yeah. Like you get this kind of reluctant look from the DM a little bit, and they go, "Oh yeah, go on then, I'll give you a reroll for it," which is not actually what it does. So maybe it should do that because that's how the community started using it anyway. Because that's it's one of the problems if you can spend it to get advantage in advance. But a lot of people like to know what the numbers are. So while people generally do like advantage, I, I agree with you on that. Mm. Nobody knows what that means in terms of how much more are you going to roll on average on your d20 and I did used to know this I've worked it out I'd have to do the maths again <laughs> but it's probably not as much as you think it is but it just kind of saves you from the about plus 4 I'm going to say yeah like something roughly. like that yeah it almost feels twice as good if you're rolling 2d20s but it's not it's mm. you know like I say half of that and yeah weirdly it feels better than getting a plus 4 if you're offered that I, I think I'd rather roll 2d20s and take the best one rather mm. than just take a straight plus, 20, uh, plus 4 on one more dice roll so I think it needs to do more inspiration if they want it to be a thing uh, and a, a centralised pool might be one way of doing it, or uh, enabling rerolls. Just because if you allow rerolls, it stops the feel bads. So when you're, that's one of the things I get from DD quite often is it comes around to my turn and I just miss, mm. and then people just look at you and the DM tries to describe in more florid detail how you've missed, which is not what you want to hear. I just want to get on with the game at that point because there's nothing I can do about it. Whereas if it's a situation where you've missed out on your big attack. And everybody's looking at you, and the DM's sort of like going through his motions. But you can spend it and go, "Oh no, wait a minute! I'm not having that. I'm going to try again. I'll re-roll." That suddenly turns that feel bad moment into a feel good moment potentially. Yeah. And if you fail again, it feels like, "Well, the odds really were against me." Like you know, I've had two bites of the cherry, still not done it. So the fates have decided that I shouldn't succeed on this go. It feels a better experience all around for me. I reckon. Yeah, I think a re-roll definitely because you're trying to change something that's just already happened which is the standard use for any kind of Benny in any other game isn't it mm, whereas yeah. spending your one or spending a hundred percent of your inspiration pool in advance of a test which you might have rolled a 20 on anyway yeah is... and you may or may not get it back exactly if it didn't remember. it just yeah yeah it yeah it just doesn't yeah it doesn't feel like a reward the the interesting tweak that they have done to inspiration is they now tell you when you lose it so if you go to bed, <laughs> it, it falls off your character sheet. So if you <laughs> if you start a long rest, you lose your inspiration. That's new because I think I've, that's what we need more admin. <laughs> that's what we need you for. I'm reasonably certain I played a campaign with uh, Steamforge Matt, a good friend. I think I got to fifteenth level before I realised that I'd had the inspiration box checked the whole time. I'd never spent <laughs> it. I'd never owned it. I'd never lost it. It's just like 15 levels. That was over a year of gaming, and no one had used it. So I think Inspiration's a poorly implemented rule. I think the way they've changed it in here is just it's polishing it up, I guess. But I simply don't understand why you would give a reward to someone who's just rolled a 20. I just don't understand if someone's probably, because it will be a PC, they've probably got a critical. Well, they will have a critical if it's in combat. A critical, does a critical always equal Inspiration as well? That that just threw the the balance right off whack. Mm. I mean, in in my game, I've written a D twenty game. Um, you get your Benny when you roll a one. Mm. 
on the basis that you learn from more, more from your mistakes and it kind of smooths over that fumble rule, you know, that idea that, oh God, it's all gone wrong. But yeah, you could have something that would help you in the future. Fate does the same thing, doesn't it? You know, take the pain now to give you the bonus later. It's kind of common for that to happen. You, you, shouldn't, be giving, you shouldn't be giving rewards for rewards on top of rewards. No. And, and again, they must have spent months looking at inspiration last time round. <laughs> yeah. Have they just got the old folders out for some of this stuff? Got, what, what didn't we use last time? I, I can't believe there's new thinking in this. No. Uh, uh, it's the same for the skills. Like, if 20 now means you automatically succeed, it feels a little bit like, well, if I roll the 20, I'll probably succeed anyway. Exactly. <laughs> like, unless my skill was terrible. But then I get inspiration for it as well. Uh, I don't know. But, yeah. I don't, it feels like fiddling around the edges again, like you say, rather than doing something meaningful. Yeah. If it, if I had my way in this section for inspiration, which I think comes from a good place, it's from the idea mm. of like, you know, how can we turn, how can we get those little spotlight moments that you might get in the cool fantasy movies? Then I think the thing that D&D lacks, but could have, is some kind of party-based mechanic. And it could be as yeah. simple as fans, fan mail to somebody else in the party, or like, Rogue does something cool, so fighter gets something impressive for the next turn because, you know, leading by example. Anything to sort of join together the characters a little bit more, which is what they tried with the original inspiration, was you would get inspiration from role-playing your bonds, flaws, ideals. So now, <laughs> so now you don't have to do any role-playing, you just got to roll a 20. Oh my goodness, I mean, they're just playing into the hands of the people who think D20 games are all about rolling D20s. Yeah, and and people who want to role play their bonds and backgrounds and all the rest, they do it anyway. Yeah, like you're not going to do it for one inspiration that you'll get for the session. That's just not not worth the effort. Yeah, so you do it because you want to do it. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Fan mail or just like just a group thing, like the One Ring has it as well. You have you know party hope yeah. these characters as well, points but you just get one per character in the middle, and it, it creates little bits where someone's like going to try really hard to do something. Oh, can, can I use a hope now? And everybody else wants to, to succeed. It's like, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And you just get that. It gives you something at the table with this mechanic. So, yes, if, if D&D are listening, I'm sure I like the entire design team listening avidly. Maybe create it as a little pool of things to spend. That might give it the love it deserves. But, yeah, it needs to do something more than it does for it to be a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and besides which, it was reasonably Bobbin's rule in the first place. But the Dungeon Master's Guide, which we covered in our deep dive, had all kinds of new uses for inspiration. And actually, this is going to happen a lot in these playtest documents. I'm seeing a lot of stuff which is already mostly called out in the original Dungeon Master's Guide, which was a book of options and toolbox stuff. Mm. And, you know, that like people have often talked about, for example, healing doesn't come up in this document, but how do we make 5e more gritty and dangerous? Dungeon Master's Guide's got you covered with a bunch of options you could pull. And it has a whole chapter in there about how to use inspiration in different ways. All of which mm. are more interesting than this one, where you get it by rolling a twenty. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're going to fill in your playtest document and send it back, so they'll uh, they'll get that feedback. True. So, what else have we got? Anything else interesting? Where's three mental notes I've got here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch. Of, uh, it's 21 pages long, this bit, and <laughs> for, for a 21-page revision document, it's all really about uh, your character's origin. So just to give you an idea of what's happening here, there's race options. They're keeping the word race. 
Bold yeah. move. Bold move. Because that seems like an easy fix, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can find replace that and solve a lot of problems. That's right. They're putting in some more stuff about backgrounds. For some reason, they seem to believe that starting languages is still like a major decision point when you're thinking up your heroic character. Um, feats, I would say, is the new thing. I yeah, feats at first level. Feet, yeah, specifically feats at first level. So third edition introduced the concept of feats at all into D&D and <laughs> took it to a stupid degree. Uh, fourth edition rolled right back on that sort of stuff. Fifth edition even more. I quite like fifth edition feats where they were more like little bundles and it was either that or an ability score improvement. It was definitely a choice whether to take a feat or not. And now mm-hmm. they're putting feats into first level. I'm not sure if that's a great idea. I do like feats as a concept, but I also liked first level being really quick to create your character, play it for a couple of sessions. Really, the game starts at third level, which is when you used to get your first feat. But now mm. a new player is confronted with some stuff, uh, a lot of things to learn, including starting languages for whatever reason, and they're having to yeah. pick a feat. And I, and I wonder if that's going to slow down getting in, getting into the first session. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I know that Jeremy Crawford had said that it's part of it is about building your character's story and making meaningful game mechanic choices that reflect the story you have in mind for your character. Mm. Which is a bit of a word salad. I'm not, yeah, like I say, for, for new people coming to it, I'm not sure that's something that they're thinking about. I really don't know, but with, with feats. If they, make, if they make everything easier, if they refat all the, reformat the book uh, and everything, maybe, I don't know. Because mm. the, the other thing you've got to think about as well as ability scores. Yep. Now instead of pairing a race, as they're still called, the set of ability score bonuses, you can choose your own bits and pieces. Really, you can add a plus two and a plus one, I think it is, or three plus ones around uh, the place. One by two and the other one by one. Yeah, or I think you can increase three by one as yes, well as the alternative. Yeah, that's an alternative. I mean, that, that's something. I, I guess there's different approaches to making a character, isn't there? And some people are going to come at it with something in their head and say, I want to do this, and then try and work out how the numbers work afterwards. And other people are going to come at going like, what's the most efficient way I can make this thing that I want to do? Yeah. Uh, so that did lead to, in the, or in the current state at least, if you're going to have a particular type of character in class, then you'll partic- you pick from a certain number of races because you'll get the appropriate bonuses that make sense for you to have them. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. I'm going to talk about ignorance of D&D, but I'm going to say, like, tiefling warlock's a good idea. Yeah. And see, see if that flies. But, you know, what if you want to be a tiefling and you want to be a cleric or something? Like, maybe the bonuses aren't in the right place. Or a druid or a ranger or, you know, pick pick the class of your choice. So I think that's, that's a good idea, at least, that you can sort of, like, pick whatever flavour you want and then move the mechanics around to suit you. Mm. It's, it is kind of a holdover from from older days. I understand why we have different ancestries having different bonuses, because then you get some measure of niche and things they're good at. But why can't you play against type? And I think that's something that's come up a lot more, just in terms of, you know, if you look at sort of like gender and all kinds of things that are in the hobby these days that people want to talk about and, and do what they want, because it is a fantasy game, you should be able to make your own mind up. Mm. Uh, allowing the mechanical flexibility to have a tiefling or a dragonborn or whatever you want and then whatever class you want and move the numbers around so you're not you've not got in the back of your mind while you're playing the flavour that you want that you've made a mechanical suboptimal option or choice early mm. that's 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 probably helpful 
I guess if you're approaching this anyway, if you're new to it, if everybody's new to it, then you're just going to do what it says in the book. And that those sort of small changes, like having a feat or the plus twos and plus ones, aren't going to make it any more overwhelming than it was. It will be anyway. No. Is what I would guess. No, that's probably correct, mate. It, it, it just felt slightly like a backward step. Yeah, um, no, mate. Because, you know, 5th edition did a, another really cool thing by just giving you backgrounds at all. So you had race and class, which is how we grew up. That would be your choice, wouldn't it? What race mm. will I be? What class will I be? Um, and then background added a third dimension to that. Wouldn't it be good if you had like you know three picks from social combat and exploration, for example? But never <laughs> mind. Um, but the background one was was kind of cool. Again, it was a little bit of a design space that didn't really get filled up in play. Like for example, what I really liked about the fifth edition backgrounds was things like uh, sage. So if you were a sage and um, you asked a question of the DM about like some hidden knowledge or something like that. If you failed your role, the DM didn't just go, you don't know. You, by failing the role as a sage, it meant you don't know, but you know who does. Or you know where the answer to that question is. Right, yeah. Which is a really cool little quest generator. Or if you were from the military background, in any settlement, you could find like you know the pub that was full of fighters and mercenaries, and they would give you a bed for the night and make sure that you'd had a, a hot drink or something, like the rule of hospitality. So there was all kinds of really cool world-building things in the backgrounds. But a bit like inspiration, they tended to get shoved to one side, really, a little bit. So now they seem to have gone a bit more mechanical. That's, I guess, right, I yeah. guess what I'm thinking now is instead you'll take Tavern Brawler as your feet, and that is strictly, that means that you can start using furniture as weapons and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's a bit more mechanical and a bit less world-buildery. Yes, yeah, I see that, and you've you kind of touched upon there a thing I don't like about feats, which I remembered, which I think was more from fourth. But by having a, a feat like Tavern Brawler, which means you can use the furniture of weapons, it then means that if you haven't got that feat, you can't do that. Yep, and it's excluding options from people by giving people a feat that does a thing that people should be able to do anyway, kind of thing. Yeah, I think it was the old uh, Schlein or Schlamway, however you pronounce it. The 2000D comic, there's a D20 version of that, and at one point I had to like run down between two horses that were pulling a chariot, like the the yoke or whatever, the thing mm. between them. And the, the gym was like, "Oh, that's cool, but there's a feat for that, and you don't have it." And it's just like that's this is the opposite of fun. Why, why are you doing this to me? And he, he just kind of shrugged, like I'm, you know, I'm demonstrating the system. So that is a thing that I'm less keen about feats when it says like you can do this thing because mm. by the rule of exception it means that the people now can't do the thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you have to follow through on that because otherwise it's not fair on the ranger who took that feat to be able to like pin someone's clothes to a wall with an arrow. Mm. Because if you try and do it and the GM goes, yeah, that sounds cool. Tricky shot though, disadvantage. And then the ranger character is going, or ranger player is going, hang on a minute, I had to like spend a pretty valuable level slot on this. Yeah. What's that and about? No, everybody can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and that that's going to be a stylistic decision. And I'm not against the idea of feats, but feats in fifth have not overpowered the game or taken it to build city, which is where it was in third. Definitely, you right, know, people yeah. were plotting out twenty levels of stuff and following a pathway through the various feats that they would get, especially yeah. as fighters who built their characters about those. And I guess that's, I guess that's the flavour I'm getting from a lot of the things here, as it's like to someone who plays, I don't know, Savage Worlds, BRP anything else 
D&D looks like the sort of game that min-maxers love because it's all about their character build rather than yeah. anything else. This appears to be pushing that button a bit harder throughout. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it looks like, and obviously this is about character creation, but it looks a little bit more about you now have flexibility to build stuff. And whenever you give people flexibility to build stuff, loads of options, people will start to try and find the best one, in inverted commas. Yeah, they'll try to optimise because of options. Yes. Yeah. But optimising in a role-playing game, and this will be, this will just be where your personal values and preferences are at. For some people, that's the antithesis of a role-playing game. And for other people, that will be the whole point. So mm. it is pushing the game slightly, slightly towards where people who hate D&D fear it already is at. Yes. There was an interesting chat we had with our good mate Pete. It was around paladins, I want to say. And at one level, you got a choice between, I don't know, it was like a combat feat or getting plus four diplomacy. Mm. but Something like that. But because fourth edition was like so keyed in to combats, that's basically what you did. Like that's You could role play as much as you want around the edges, but ultimately, like everything was... Balanced out so that the numbers were to you try to do comes like you said. There's like literally no point taking the plus four diplomacy mm. for the amount of times it'll come up and the difference it'll make to the game compared to how many fights you get. Because if you're playing fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, that's what you want to do. Otherwise, why are you using that real set? It was pointless. So there's a bit of um, there's a bit of a tension there. It's how much, how much do you put things in that aren't doing the thing you want to do like the, the background stuff you talked about was really interesting in terms of story driving and I liked mm. all that and I don't think you can put a lot of mechanics around it like you have to have everything be mechanicless in the backgrounds for those sort of ideas to work mm. as soon as you start to give some things a mechanical bonus and others not then you get a disparity and you get people making choices based on numbers rather than what's cool Yeah, potentially yes I would think so and that also goes into the language that is used to present the rules as well. So, you know, in a rules-like game, and let's not pretend that D&D is a rules-like game, um, but a rules-like game can be much more terse about its descriptions of how things work mechanically. It can be more vague as well, I suppose, is another way of putting yeah. it. D&D has, has decided long ago to not do that, so a lot of its rules descriptions will read like the mechanical text off a of Magic the Gathering card. Uh, Pathfinder yeah, is even yeah. more like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there, there will be capitalised things that mean stuff, like ability score bonus will mean something, and a proficiency. Proficiency gets used all the way through the game in all kinds of different ways. But it does mean as well that... And we haven't seen too much of this yet, but you see spells are written in a kind of a very academic way. Not in a it's cool wizard way, like that kind of academic, <laughs> but more like in legalese. Um, yes. And that's why, you know, I, I keep coming back to starting languages as well. It seems to be quite, again, mechanical. Pathfinder 2 is even more so. I mean, that really does look like you're reading the uh, terms and conditions on your iPhone update. <laughs> But in this one as well, you know, despite there being so much fantasy in D&D, and they're really pushing the fantasy as well, they have, you know, new races like Ardlings and so on, which we haven't talked about yet, have we? And, and, yet. and putting orcs in there as, as player characters, and, and there's Dragonborn, there's all kinds of really cool stuff. But it's quite hard to get get excited about these things when you, mm. when you kind of fast forward and see what numbers it gives you what bonuses it gives you, you know? 
Um, yeah. And that could kind of suck the life out of it. I don't play to that degree myself, so I couldn't particularly tell you whether Dragon Ball, or your example of a tiefling warlock, I think sounds like it's a good idea. Mechanically, I think it's a good idea, but there will be people already going, oh, no, 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 what you want instead is a half Asimar with a red dragon heritage, because that will give you the plus one that you need at level eight. And, yeah. that, and I, I, you know, horses for courses, etc., but that, I, I just don't want to generate a character based on that. And the age-old discussion is, does D&D make you like that? Or did it just attract you because you were like that? Mm. Yeah, and you can look at Pathfinder 2, for example. I know there's a lot of Pathfinder Society games and tournament play and you know official scenarios that have to run a certain way and competitiveness that comes with it. I'm not saying that all Pathfinder players are like that, but again, it attracts that sort of player. So it has to be nailed down because it's going to be run in a certain way. Mm. Uh, you know, certainly in the broad sense of conventions and all the rest of it. For D&D, there's an element of that, like you say, it's got the same roots, but it's interesting that they, it feels like they're trying to make D&D more open, accessible, you know, not really airy-fairy is probably the wrong word, but, you know, more about story and, you know, having streamed games and watching things and thinking, mm. oh, this is cool, and getting to the characters seems to be like a driver for it while maintaining this kind of, like, the other foot of the, the, the giant that's straddling this is kind of trying to keep things templated and nailed down rules-wise mm. and have things written in a specific way, which is, it's a weird tension. It's a weird tension because you, you're trying to keep the rules to a certain standard and written in a certain way, mm-hmm. while also seem to be trying to do a different thing with the, the hobby as a whole, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, and 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 I guess that's that's not particularly about the playtest. That's just the way D&D just gets yes. you talking isn't it after a yeah. while that's yeah. just you know I'm oh, I've been quite down on some of the rules changes in this playtest that's fine you know you don't have to like it all um, I'm not sure any of this is necessary but I remain a massive fan of D&D I really mm. am and I've played an awful lot of it over the years but it's a complex relationship when you play a lot of D&D it's a really complex relationship when you play D&D and other games you know it's it's just it is it's just different it's its own beast and and I've come to terms with the fact that when I play D and I play it a different way to the way that I play. Well, obviously a game like Call of Cthulhu for lots of different reasons, but any other fantasy game, should we say? Yeah. You you kind of you get the most out of it by leaning into it, but then sometimes you lean into it so far you think I'm going to fall over in a minute and I'm just going to fall into a tub of modifiers <laughs> <laughs> and drown. Plus ones are right. in checking. You know that that. <laughs> <laughs> oh god which one of, which one of us can see in the dark oh all of us and you and ever i have never flicked through a book so much as i do when i play D, and it's a game i know better than any other game but yeah. i'm constantly doubting myself and having to go back and check and nothing in this playtest document is going to make it any easier because actually as an old hand what you will do is you'll like anyone who's played multiple editions of D, go is this the one where the critical hit doubles it or you double the dice or you, uh, which one is this again? Does the armor class go up? Does it go down? Does it go sideways? Ah, yeah. Well, well, maybe, maybe there's a saving grace. The other one thing I got that I was going to mention mm. is the playtest changes the rules for grappling. So have we now actually got like a good <laughs> set of grappling rules, Baz? Have they sold it? This could be the thing that wins me over. Well, holy cow! Right, okay. I, I don't know why grappling is so difficult in all games, in fairness, but, but certainly in D and D, it's just there. It's, it's kind of a bit of a meme now, isn't it? Like that there's going to be loads of typos in The Guardian. It's probably not actually true. You know, 
I don't think grappling's been that hard to figure out how to do it. I think what's difficult about grappling is why would you do it? And there I am, playing D&D the way D&D wants to be played, which is do something yeah. effective, not just interesting. Yes. But if you want to be effective and you want to do grappling, now apparently the rule is you've just got to be able to hit someone to be able to grab hold of them. It's like, this is making me doubt what they used to have as the rule then. What on earth was it before? <laughs> if it wasn't that, what was it? Was it based on saves or something before? And now it's AC. I can't remember. <laughs> I just every time somebody says they want to grab something, I'm just like, yes, you do. There you yeah. go. You've got to, let's not roll dice. I don't want to. I don't want to look it up. I know. But what do you do about it when you are grappling someone? I think in our heads we see it like Jason Bourne rolling around in a Berlin apartment with an assassin on top of him, trying to push a yeah. knife into his face. But there's not. There's never any backup to grappler. When you get a grapple on something, the next round is never very exciting. It's just no. not maintain the grapple, or, or you know, now your speed is zero. You get to inflict a small amount of damage, maybe. Yeah. And if you're the grappled person, you get to roll to see if you break out of the grapple. Yes. Well, it does. It just takes two people out of the fight, basically. Is what it does. It really does. It's a little mini game for a while, doing nothing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I suppose, what grappling is—just loads of pushing and shoving, isn't it? But it's, yeah. it's not very exciting. I don't. I, yeah, isn't it? And because it does. It goes back to the thing we were talking about with feats, and you were mentioning, Gaz, is that if there's a rule for it, you kind of have to use it in D&D, because otherwise it's penalising the people who don't. And in my ideal D&D, grapple wouldn't exist as a separate thing. It would just come out in description. And you might have to like do some rules on the fly, which is in the face of, of D&D modernly, isn't it? But surely grappling should just be something that comes out in the same way as like tripping and disarming and all the other things that have had explicit rules in the past. Mm. But by making it explicit, you take away the creativity of the player who wants to play the fighter and come up with cool manoeuvres. Yes. Because if it isn't on the sheet, it can't happen. Yeah. Or when they start looking down, the things are going, well, a headbutt's more effective than a trip, so I'm always going to headbutt someone. And then you take away a lot of description. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So what we're not getting from this playtest is a radical reimagining of D&D. It's not a step back to the OSR. It's not going rules light. It seems to be doubling down on nitty-gritty, on minutiae, and tinkering with stuff that I don't think anyone was clamouring to have changed. But there you are. I mean, it might just be, and like, like we mentioned at the opera, this is like the first iteration of many, probably. Mm. There's going to be a bunch of different playtest packets with things changed around mm. uh, and feedback and so forth, which is fine and probably good for the game to get like a, you know that rigor done to it. Yeah, yeah. They, they were. Ha- I think they were happy, as you said. Like you know that this edition's been around for so long now. They're happy with what they've got, so that there never was going to be a massive radical change. Because perhaps after learning the lesson from fourth edition, where there was a a, a reasonably big change from third to to fourth. Mm. Uh, and there's a fracture, and you know there's a, a schism between fans, and some loved it, some hated it, and some are indifferent. Uh, so it, it feels like they've just got the core of what they want, and now they're just dressing around the edges mm-hmm. and trying to tweak things over there, which is perfectly fine. Um, as I've mentioned before, and I will say again for our listeners, in case you've forgotten, this is just us getting into the the roots and the weeds of it, just to like thrash things out and talk about it. We don't really have a strong opinion about whether this is going to change the face of D&D or not because it never was going to do it it's really just a, a thought experiment I guess 
Yeah, absolutely, mate. And to, to build on that, what I would say is that all of these mooted new rules, there's actually nothing particularly wrong with them at all. And if the original player's handbook had come out with these rules in it, I'd have been fine with that. I'd have been absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is that, that situation that you describe is that they're not going to do any major things here. They're not going to they're not going to take away the term armor class. I'm reasonably yeah. certain of that. I think they probably will still keep rolling for stats, even though it's clearly a vestigial thing at this point. So yeah. really, you are expecting them to like reword the grapple condition. You're thinking that probably they will change some of the spell descriptions to make them well whatever it is they want to make them. But you but you can just tell it's going to be tightened up. That's what it will be, and and that's the direction that D and D is going in. Especially if they want to make it like the the Rosetta Stone of the future games that they want to do. So mm-hmm. if they ever do D and D in space, they want to have a robust robust super legalistic, you know, you can't get a cigarette paper in between them, it will defeat all the rules lawyers, it will be really explicit what you can do and what you can't do, so that they can build with confidence on top of that. That's yeah. what I think they're trying to do. They're just tuning the engine, but they're, they're, it would have been foolish to think that they were going to chuck it out and go back to red box D&D. That was never going to happen. Yeah. Interesting you mentioned space, because we did... When we last spoke, to, I think it was Jeremy Crawford or perhaps one of the other uh, designers for Sparty, we did talk about when the new edition of D&D comes out, mm-hmm. or you do a, a sci-fi version. Uh, well, currently out in America and seen to be out in Europe is uh, Spelljammer, mm-hmm. which is effectively D&D in space. Yeah. Or, or the astral plane, but you know, you're not a million <laughs> miles away from that, are you? <laughs> uh, and I guess that's that's something I'm to allude, alluded to earlier, rather, is that kind of with the supplements they're bringing out and source books, that's probably where more of the interesting for a story background creativity comes from in terms of having weird and wonderful settings mm-hmm. rather than it ever going to be like in the player's handbook that this stuff comes out that's suddenly going to thrill and excite us. Yeah. Yeah. So my lukewarm take on this is not, it doesn't even qualify as, <laughs> as a room temperature <laughs> take. But my, my take on this is that what we're seeing here is the new second edition AD&D. So what I mean by that is that second edition AD&D tightened up the first one, which was not hard to do because the first one was just a glorious mess from out of Gygax's head and (laughs) everything else was in there. So second edition tried to tidy all of that up and make it a bit more tournament legal, standardised, etc, etc. But basically was backwards compatible with first edition. You could use all of the old stuff. And then once they've got that done... Then TSR, as it was, went crazy and did all kinds of wild stuff. They did Ravenloft and Planescape and Dark Sun and Spelljammer and all of these amazing settings that completely fractured the fan base at the time because all of a sudden people were only buying into one line instead of all of them. Mm -hmm. But my goodness me, did they get some stuff going on. And that's what's happening here. Sometimes it's new stuff. So we've got, uh, you know, Agit's book, Radiant Citadel, from last time we spoke, which is, you know, kind of new and exciting and taking it off into new directions. And then there's the fan service stuff where they're going back to Spelljammer. And there's constant clamour for, like, when are you going to do Dark Sun? And, uh, and Ravenloft's had its had its moment in, well, in the moon, not in the sun. And Planescape <laughs> is lined up for next year. So I think they, they, they want this one D&D to do for D&D what second edition did 
but somehow they're going to manage to monetize it, which TSR couldn't do. And that's what brings in tabletop, virtual stuff, D&D Beyond, subscription models, etc. Yes. So that's yeah. my lukewarm take, is it's the new second edition. Yeah, I can I can buy that. And I think it's, as I was saying earlier, with DMs Guild providing lots of scenarios and things like that, where in the past TSI had to produce Dark Sun and then loads of adventure modules and other things that only a small segment were buying, what D&D can do this time around is going like, here's your big your box set or your, your hardback book for our setting, and that's all we're doing for it. Thanks very much. And they can step away from it and decide if you know there's sufficient uptake to produce something else afterwards. Or they can just leave it to the DMs Guild guys to produce loads of content for it. Mm. So people won't feel like it's an abandoned setting because there's always going to be new stuff coming out via that service. And equally, you know, there's very little outlay from Wizards' point of view. They can they know if they produce every three to six months a big new setting that it's going to get bought because mm. people will be interested in seeing whether it's for them or not. And then that's all they have to do with it if it doesn't go as well as perhaps they want it to. If it goes gangbusters, they might think, well, we'll, we'll produce some extra stuff, a bit more like Ravenloft got mm. some extra books. So I think it's that that model enables it and then as you say if you've got a subscription model for digitized content as well then the world's your mollusk really and then the other thing we should probably not forget is that the D market is like a lot bigger now yes compared to what it was it's huge yeah i think that's a really good point you've made there mate because when they went to fifth following fourth i think i don't think it'd be too much of a stretch to say it was there to save D. if if fifth hadn't have worked that would have been it you know, hmm. and that would have been it for Wizards of the Coast at least. But D and D after four was was obviously in pain. Let's not go back over that old ground again. But you know, Wizards of the Coast could easily see that they had to do something to bring it back. And then fast forward eight years, and fifth edition has been such a rip roaring success for them and for gaming as a whole. We sp- we spoken before about how rising tide lifts all the boats, etc. Yeah, yeah. There is now this new one D and D isn't there to save D&D, it's there to glory in it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking here is that they're, they're in a pretty good position where they can leverage this massive new influx of gamers. And that massive influx of gamers aren't paying attention to the one, two, three, four, or 5 in front of D&D that we've always used. So I think calling it 1D&D is quite clever. It's a bit of a gimmick. But they really do want this to be the springboard from where D&D starts in the 21st century kind of sort of yeah i don't know but that's where that's where i'm thinking they're going is they're looking at the huge amount of potential customers that they have and as is typical for role-playing games the vast majority of them are probably downloading it for free with basic and they're joining in streams and so on and not much of their money is leaving their wallets and heading towards watsy despite them having loads of customers so they need to do something about that, and I think this might be it. And I think that this playtest document is the least of the things that are going to make that happen. It's it's yeah. just a teaser for people like you and me. Yeah, and it just gets people involved, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned a lot later. Is it like next year is coming out? Like not straight away either. Yeah, we're like a year away from the next edition. Here. At least. Probably Gen Con next year, I would think, because of all that is mm-hmm. the earliest you can expect it. Well, that's a lot of time to keep the excitement going. And while these playtest documents keep coming out and things keep tweaking, people keep talking about it. Yeah. And the hashtags keeps flying around and all the rest of it. It's, you know, it's marketing gold in terms of keeping your brand in the headlines all the time. Yeah, it is. 
It is. And for those who aren't interested, it gives you a couple of words to mute on Twitter, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think when I, when I put this uh, podcast out, I should do one with all the hashtags in and one without any hashtags. <laughs> and then everyone's got a fair chance of seeing it. Hey, listen, <laughs> I, I'm really pleased that D&D looks like it's having a really golden time at the moment and is pushing forwards rather than retreating. That wasn't always the case, whether it's TSR or WotC. I think it's a good thing that they've got going on here. Um, and it will be nice to watch and see how it develops. I don't think I'm going to be rushing to my game table next week to include all of these rules. That's not really the point, is it? I think I think this is just about getting people excited for the D&D is alive and well and looking to springboard itself into its next evolution. Because that's the word yeah. they want to use, don't they? Evolution, yeah. not edition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the one... <laughs> The one concern about calling it one D and D is that you're putting a number in the title again. Yeah. <laughs> it just feels a little bit like an addition again. Like I, I, I would have ignored that and thought of something better. Uber D and D. I've only something. just retired my D and D three sixty. It looks good. Yeah, um, like I've, I've played some Thirteenth Age recently. I really like that. That's my preferred edition of D and D. You know, I'd, Dungeons and Dragons official version, whatever it sure is, is never going to be the same as that. But that's RKT. Yeah. It's all good. Yes, well, we will no doubt return to this topic in a few months when more details come out and more things have flown around. Maybe we've tried some bits and pieces. I'm certainly looking forward to trying some of the new settings just on a look through. Uh, I think having things like Rockagan 5e, for example, is something that I'd be quite interested in. I I do love Legend of the Fire Rings. Mm. Whether D&D suits it or not, I don't know, but I'm sure I can convince one of our friends to run it for me so I can try it out and see how it fits out. Mm-hmm. Spelljammer passed me by back in the day, really. I was aware of it, but never really played it. I've just done a couple of one-shots in a Fate version, I think, or something. So that might be something I pick up just to have a look around. But yeah, exciting times for Dean Dizzle and uh, and the rest of the hobby, therefore. Yeah, Planescape next year. And an interesting question, which we'll have to ask Matt, what do you do if you're a third-party publisher now that this has dropped? Hmm... Well, it's all right. It's all backward compatible, isn't it? <laughs> you want to make sure it's forward compatible, though, don't you? If you want to write an adventure or a source book or whatever, you want it yeah. to work with what's coming. Interesting times. Excellent. Well, good to catch up with you, as always, Baz, Indeed. out there in Lister Land. If you've got any thoughts on upcoming D&D, uh, don't be frightened of letting us know. And, of course, do let us know if you want to talk about this more or less, because we're always uh, open to hear from you. Mm. Yeah, and cheers as always to our glorious patrons who keep this show on the road. Literally couldn't do it without you guys. Uh, love to hear from you too. So get in touch through the usual channels. And until next time, dear listeners, bye bye.